take our Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 2. As we continue our study here, to help us get a better understanding of what it is that Paul is talking about and who he's talking to, and how does this apply to us? How does that cause us to have a better understanding of not only who God is, but how he desires to work and move and change our lives? So you turn there to Romans chapter 2. Hold on to that as I walk you through a few thoughts and a few ideas here. Now, so far we've walked through an understanding that this book is written to both Jewish and Greek Christians who are having a struggle. The Jewish Christians are saying, you need to be doing these things in order to have favor with God. And if you don't do these things, then God's not going to give you favor. The Gentile Christians are saying, it's all about grace, man. Maybe you don't get it. It's not about the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law, to finish the law's requirement, to put us in a place where we can rejoice in every day and not worry about sin in our lives. That's the issue that is taking place that we're going to speak to today. Paul speaks to the issue of, well, what about God's wrath? Why is this happening then? Why do people receive in their lives this clarification that when you sin, there are consequences, whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian? It doesn't matter. If you sin, there will be consequence. Why is this taking place? Why is God doing this? What's the connection between sin and consequences? And how am I supposed to respond to it? And Paul says, but hold it a minute. Don't start judging your brothers and sisters in relationship to what's happening in their lives and automatically assuming that's the result of some type of sin or some type of misunderstanding or application of God's direction and will in their lives. Because the reality is all of us struggle with sin in a variety of different ways. And that when we find ourselves in a tough situation or experiencing difficult circumstances, it doesn't mean that that's the result of God's wrath in our life. It may very well be God desiring to bring about character that will only come forth when we have to deal with struggle and difficulty and question. And we exert our faith And we discover the marvelous power and presence of God within it. Don't judge one another concerning who is better or who is worse. It's God's kindness that draws us to the place of repentance. And then he finishes that thought. He kind of goes back in. But remind yourself that the day of judgment is coming. I'm going, Paul! Just when I was getting a little more comfortable, you came back at me again. You will be judged. The day we will all stand before God, and God will stand up and say, this is right and this is wrong. And we're like, what? I thought we were, we're, out, we're out of grace again. We're back into law. What's going on? Paul continues to clarify, and you see this going back and forth. Jewish Christian, you guys have a problem. You're too focused on the law. Gentile Christians, you guys have a problem. You're using cheap grace. Cheap grace. Grace spent on yourself for your own selfish reasons. That's not the reason God gives us grace. 
That's the flow. That's the picture. Jew and Gentile will be dealt with. God will be glorified. And that ultimate day when all of sin's power will be destroyed. And all will recognize the fairness of God. Today, Paul moves to the next section of arguments and understanding. When he begins to deal with this simple truth, and that's this, that Jews and Greeks alike are equal opportunity sinners. In desperate need of heart and behavioral change. In desperate need of heart and behavioral change. You see, Jesus came full of grace and what? Truth. Grace and truth. We'll deal with that idea and concept today. See, the problem is about a misunderstanding of truth and grace and how it applies itself into our everyday living. So let's turn to Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3 of verse 7. So Romans chapter 2, turn over there with you. Starting with verse 17, and I'll make a few comments as we go along through this. Then we'll go back and we'll do a verse-by-verse breakdown. Paul starts out now. He said, if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you brag about your relationship with God, you know his will, you approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law. You're convinced that you're a guide to the blind, a light for those who are in the darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher even of infants. He's referring to circumcision there. A teacher of infants, that's who would come be brought in, they would be circumcised. They're teaching even infants through this process and clarification of God's directive and God's will and God's understanding in their life. They're becoming followers of Jesus, followers of, of God's truth as they are circumcised. They're teachers even of infants. Because you have in the law... This embodiment of knowledge and truth. So the law contains all the truth and all the necessary knowledge that we need in order to understand God. You then, you who teach others, don't you teach yourself? Aren't you under the rabbi's teaching? You're learning on a regular basis and every day you find yourself going, aha, I get that. Oh, I didn't understand it. Oh, I get that. Don't you? Teach yourself as well. Isn't there a process going on within this teaching structure? Do you think it's already come to the entire end? He says, you who preach against stealing. Do you ever steal anything? Did you take some pencils and pens from work? Did you uh, just kind of add a little bit onto your credit card that was from the company? That You, know, you get the idea. Do, do you steal? Are you involved in different aspects of stealing? You know you are, is what he's saying. You know you guys do. You're not kidding me, any. You who say that people should not commit adultery, are you committing adultery? Now, this is a specific thing because at this time there were three different rabbis who were set up before the Sanhedrin and recognized they had been involved in committing adultery. So Paul's referring back to that situation that had been taking place and the adulterous relationships that were happening among the teachers of the law, those who were proposed, pro- pronounced themselves as above other people. He says, so now, uh, what, what about you who abhor idols? Do you rob temples? Because he recognized what's also going on is within the temple structures. Many times the Jews were going in and they were literally stealing the stuff in the name of God. 
so they wouldn't continue to be using these idols, and they melt the silver down, and you know, whatever, <laughs> you get the picture. It even happens today. We do so well, you know, it's, it was bad for them, so I took care of it. It's like Krispy Kreme donuts. I figure if I eat more than you do, I'm saving you. I'm helping you. You don't want to be fat, so I'll go in your place. Okay, you're, you're getting the idea of the picture here that's coming into play. You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking it? These ten words that God has laid out. Are you breaking it? Are you dishonoring your parents? Are you, as you walk through the process, of course you're breaking it. You know that you break the law on a regular, consistent basis. In fact, it's written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You could add to the Jews. The Jewish people were not looked upon with great favor. And the Gentiles did not look upon the Jews with great favor. They saw them as cheap, conniving, manipulative, and we could go on down the line. It's a common view of the Jewish people and what was taking place in their lives. Circumcision only has value if you observe or carry out the law. But if you break the law, you become as those who have not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as someone who is circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you. Who even though you have a written code, the word of God given to you beforehand, you're a special nation, you're seen as separate and set aside, and you're circumcised. But you're a lawbreaker even if they're not. He says, you know, a man's not a Jew if he's only one Outwardly, only one that's circumcised. I've been circumcised, therefore I'm a Jew. He says, that's not how it works, folks. You're not a child of Abraham just because you came through him in relationship to birth and you were circumcised. That's not what it's about. Circumcision isn't just merely outward and physical any more than baptism is. All the Well, I've been baptized, you know, uh, six, eight times. I may come forward today to get baptized again. They'd say, what? It's not taking. It's not working. Good thing about circumcision, one time, everybody knows. Ooh, okay. Such a man's praise is not from men. It's from God. Now, here's interesting enough. I'll touch on it a little later. But he does an interesting setup here where he uses the term praise, which is also the word Jew. They're interused here, and I'll explain that a little bit later. Chapter 3. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Well, there's a lot of it. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. Do you see how Paul's going back and forth? He speaks to the Jews, and then he speaks to the Gentiles. And he speaks to the Gentiles, and he speaks to the Jews. That's what's going on. So when you listen, oh, and now he's talking to the Jewish Christians. Oh, now he's talking to the Gentile Christians. You have to see that argument that's taking place as you read through this, so you'll get thoroughly, completely confused. He said, well, first of all, they've been entrusted with the very words of God, or the ten words of God. The ten commandments laid down by God where he clarified truth. In its purest form, it's laid out here. What if some of them didn't have faith? What if they didn't follow through 
with not just understanding the law, but actually doing it? What if they, they failed to proclaim the truth of who God is and how it can work in their life and called other nations to task and said, God is real. God is available. You can respond to him. What if they didn't do that? Does that make God a liar in terms of bringing out these words? No, not at all. God's true. His truth is true. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It doesn't matter whether you choose to obey it or not. It's still going to be true. We're jumping back to that. God's wrath is revealed from heaven to all those who choose not to follow the law. The consequences will still take place. Truth will still be truth. As it is written, though you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. This last time we stand before God and everybody's going to say, you're right, Lord. It is fair. I was wrong. You're right. I just didn't get it. Now I get it. And then he moves to the Gentiles and he says, but however, some of you say, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say that God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? The consequences of what we've done is God being unfair. After all, I'm declaring him as God almighty. I'm a Christian. I'm saying Jesus is real. Grace is all around here. So when I sin and God judges me, it kind of seems unfair because after all, I'm under the cross of Jesus. Grace is on me. There shouldn't be any consequences for Christians. Don't you agree with that? I go, Lord, no consequences anymore, right? There is no condemnation for those in Christ, right? He says, well, yes, but no. Yes, in God's eyes and recognition that sins, pain, and penalty will not be placed upon you. But no, the consequences you still get. Sorry. If you choose to do that, and they're going, that's just not fair. And Paul says, of course it's fair. It's totally fair. In fact, if it wasn't fair, how would God judge the entire world if he's being unfair? He's saying, well, the Christians get over. They get off because although they did all these things, they're not responsible for that because they're under the blood of my son. And yes, they're all sinning. But hey, you know, it's like it's not a big deal because they're under the blood. But you guys who are not receiving. He said, no, no, we'll all be under the same judgment for what we've done. The difference is those of us who have been placed under the blood of Christ, who recognize he died for our sins, will be set aside. Say, oh, okay, no, you guys go over there. You're in a special place. Okay, okay. the rest of you, he said, the judgment's going to take place for everybody. Everybody will be judged. Everybody will be laid out according to what they have done, whether a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter. He said, and someone might even be really stupid and say, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory... Why am I still condemned as a sinner? Paul goes, really? Is that really your argument? Seriously? He said, well, why not? As some even slanderously report, why don't we do evil that good may come? He said, this is really terrible, terrible thinking. And you know it. And any condemnation that comes upon you is just. For saying those things, much less actually thinking you can get away with that. This is the guy who says to his wife, after he's been caught in adultery, you know, honey, it wasn't a big deal. It really, I didn't love her. She was just there, and then she walks. I mean, I don't mean that. Hold it just a minute. It's not that you're just, you see the struggle? But that's the argument that's being promoted here. And he's saying, 
All this is is a rational lie. It's a way for you to try desperately to make your sin okay as a Christian when the reality is you were set free not so you could sin more, but so that you could sin less and begin to overcome that power and no longer have to receive the penalty for your direct sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that is so intense. It's frightening at times as I look at this. And there's so much insight that applies to me. My Jewishness, my Greekness, my desire for grace, my rejection of truth. Father, we pray that today you'll guide us through the understanding of this passage and help us to submit to it and to experience the wonder that takes place when we learn how to walk with you. Direct us, Lord. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. That's the picture. So today, Paul is trying to help us deal with this misunderstanding of truth and grace and its application in our life. He's talking about the need for the Jews and the Greeks to see how each of their strengths also points out their weaknesses. Paul is deeply hurt over the inability of these Christians to just get along. We're called to love one another, and you guys are at each other's throats. Why are you doing this? It's like a Baptist business meeting. Why are you doing this? What's happening here? Have you forgotten the core of your faith? He says, your misunderstanding of the one who called you and the necessity of choosing to love one another is causing all kinds of division. This should not be. But the Jewish Christians are convinced that it's only as we emphasize and embrace the truth of God's written law that we can understand the power of his Grace. Great statement, isn't it? Like, that makes sense to me. After all, Jesus was a Jew who brought us grace. They're the, I have come to bring the truth, guys. Hey? I have come to bring the truth. We need to hold on and call others to be part of the Jewish nation that has come to Jesus. And the truth to them is that circumcision and submission to the rabbinic teachings as they explain the law and our submission to it is needed for growth, true growth, in our relationship with God. If you are not circumcised, you're like being in a canoe without a paddle. If you don't choose to allow the law to guide your actions and understanding You're in a canoe without a paddle. We must work out our salvation as we embrace truth and seek to understand grace. You see, it's all about personal obedience and supernatural change. Folks, fake it till you make it. Do you see the argument going on? Fake it till you make it. Because here's the issue. You teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. You teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. 
Paul responds to this struggle and he says, hold it. Let's take a look at the Greek Christians. They're, they're convinced the primary calling of us to Christ is founded on the recognition and the embracing of, can you figure out what it is? Grace, baby. It's all about grace. It's all about grace. Jesus is God who brings us grace and fulfilled the law. We're to rest in his provision. They're the, well, what is truth, guys? What is truth? Nobody really knows truth. I keep learning and growing and understanding, but I don't really know it now. So, hey, enjoy God's grace. The issue isn't embracing truth. It's about embracing grace. It's the truth of grace that we must hold on to and clearly declare to all that are around us. If the law is the paddle, grace is the canoe. See the argument? And they're like, oh, oh. If you have no canoe, who cares about your stinking paddles? Let the current move you. Now, folks, I'm not saying either one is right because Paul's going to tell you, guys, you're both wrong. You're both wrong. It's not either or, it's both and. This group is saying we've got to tear grace. Grace alone is our cry of salvation. We rejoice in our salvation as we embrace grace and we seek to understand the truth as God changes each one of us individually. It's all about personal motivation and supernatural change. Paul is caught up in this. Which one of us is right, Paul? You tell us which one of us is right. And he says, Jesus came to provide grace and Truth. Grace and truth. And that as you understand and apply both those together, you discover the life that he's called us to and his intention and desires within our life. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth, grace and the law came through Jesus Christ. He fulfills the law and understanding of it and the application of it. So let's go back to our text. He starts off with this simple thing in chapter 2, verse 17. You Jews are relying on God's law, and you boast about your special relationship with him. He goes, you can't rely on God's law. You can't find yourself just trusting on God's law. That's not sufficient. You who bear the name Jew, you rely on this concept or idea. You see God as a national asset and a private prerogative. My God... That's what they're singing. My God, and you don't have him. He's my God because I'm a Jew. And you're not. The best you can do is get grafted in. But me, I'm a real apple tree. Okay? Unlike you. But maybe God will have grace on you and let you in. Because this picture, you're kind of like going, what? Well, you're kind of secondary Christians. You're... We'll let you in, but whether you like it or not, God chose to bear you, that you were born as a Gentile, but I was born a Jew because God loves me more than you. Do you get the picture? That's exactly what's going on, this intense sense 
They bragged about their Jewishness. There's a sense of pride and respectability and self-righteousness. I am a Jew. We're a guide for the blind. They're quoting out of Isaiah 42, 49, 60. We're a light for the Gentiles to bring them in if we choose to. This Jewish religious leadership had become conceited guides who boast of their knowledge. We're instructors for the foolish. We clarify the truth so you can understand it. We even teach instance through the process of circumcision. We are God's chosen people. We know it. You know it. Just accept it. Listen to me. Paul's like... Hold it just a minute. You realize in, the, in this time, many, many Jews would add the name Jew to their name whenever they would say, what's your name? I am Simon Bar Joseph Jew. I said, well, that's not like saying you're an alcoholic. I'm Lee Harrison. I'm an alcoholic. But in this case, no, it's not a humility statement. It's a pride statement. I'm Lee Harrison and I'm a Jew. Unlike you. Poor, poor you. I hope we're getting this. This picture is God's chosen people. We're proud of it. They were also called Hebrews because of the land language they spoke and where they came from. They were Israelites because they came from Israel. But by the time of Christ, the common name of the people were Jews. And it wasn't necessarily a positive statement except for them. They were like, I'm a Jew. Isn't that great? And the other people are going, yeah, you're a Jew. And the same thought you got right now is the same one that was going on then. You are prideful. You are arrogant. You are all about the other Jews and not about us. You don't charge interest to your Jewish brothers and sisters, but you set me up and you cream me. I borrow from you at 20%. But you lend to your Jewish friends at nothing. What's that all about? And there's this sense of irritation taking place by their specialists. They don't even have to join in the army. They don't have to. They can be drafted into the Roman army, in the army because they were allowed to be free to enjoy the Sabbath day, which was a day of rest. And if they were in the army, they would have to move forward. And they said, there's just too much hassle. Forget it. They don't have to be conscripted in to the armed forces. Well, that makes everybody else happy. Oh, great. I get to go to Vietnam, but you get to go to college. That's fair. That's fair. Hmm. Catching the picture? What's going on here? What Paul's trying to say? He said, you're saying I am a Jew, and other people are saying, yeah, poor guy. There's a great story about a quote unquote, devout Christian man who was all about himself and what he wore and how he spoke and all of his issues. And he was talking to the Sunday school teacher and he was saying, you know, these these boys, I'm getting tired of them. They're not acting correctly. They don't have their act together. They're rude They're She said, well, how about you teach a class? He said, I will teach a class. I will show them the way. So he comes to the class and he gets in front of the class. And he says, OK, everybody here. Why do people call me a Christian? It was quiet. Finally, one boy in the back said, because they don't know you? And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, 
You guys shouldn't be proud of the reputation you have because it's not a good one. It's only a good one in your own eyes. It's only a good one in the praise of other Jewish people. But it's not a good one in the eyes of God. You see, this cost of Jewish hypocrisy, knowing the truth gives you the information, but if you don't experience the understanding that provides change, then it's less than useful. So they were seen as hypocrites. Knowing the truth gives you the information, but if you don't experience the understanding that provides change, then it's not useful. I've got John White. There's John Whiteman. John Whiteman has an extensive knowledge of mathematics, calculus, physics. He got this all down, okay? And all he does is sit home and write out problems. That would be useless. Unless he was a teacher, then you get paid for it. But sorry, Eric. But anyway, the reality is he's also what we refer to as a structural engineer. So he's taken this knowledge that he's been given and he's placed it into effect and said, because I have this knowledge, I'm able to figure out what structural integrity is all about. And Paul is saying, you guys have this knowledge, but you have no integrity. You're not using that which God has provided you. Get a grip. Get a handle on it. You are pretenders. You're hypocrites. You're outside in, but not inside out. You don't have the right motivation. You only do the right thing because you're supposed to do it. You don't do it because you want to do it. And true circumcision, oh, no, no, that's from the heart, not from the head. It's not I give whether I want to give or not. It's I give because I want to give. I am generous because God has called me to generosity. And when I give, I have this sense of yes. Yes. I really like giving. I really like loving people. It's like, yeah, this is great. My heart has changed. Paul's saying, you're not experiencing that, you guys. You're following the law's directives and you're so caught up in the law. You're so caught up in speaking the truth that you fail to understand what the truth is for. You're like a husband whose wife comes down with this purple dress on and and she just looks absolutely terrible. And he looks at her and she says, honey, how do I look? And he says, wonderful as usual. Whenever I look upon you, I see your beauty. But perhaps that dress doesn't reflect it as well as some others that you have do. Oh, really? I really love the white one. It's like, wow. It shows off all the natural things that God has given you. It causes your eyes to pop out. It's like, I really like it. She walks back going, this is so cool. I'm going for the white one. And he's thinking, phew. Or he could have said, you kind of look like a fat plum. Now, both statements were true. But one was without understanding of the purpose of having truth or discernment. And so Paul is saying, what good is it if you got all this stuff and you don't use it? You have enough intelligence to know what you should be saying to her. And instead, you say something stupid like, you look like a fat plum. She 
deserves to knock you out. You're getting the picture, the idea. It says, you follow the law's directives regardless of greater good. You have to understand grace and truth together. They're like a great sandwich. Avocado, little turkey, little bacon. Oh, yeah, bacon. You know, and you put it all together, it's like, ah. But if you just take one, just, just one piece, it's like, ah. Or a cake that's baked is awful until you get all the ingredients in. You get in the picture of the idea. And so that's what he transitioned. He said the value of circumcision, there's only value in circumcision if it's circumcision of the heart. There's only value in baptism. It's a response of your heart to the recognition of what God has done and who he is and a declaration. Oh, God, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Change me. Make me more like your son. But the Jewish people were saying, don't you remember David's comment? You remember David's comment, don't you, to Goliath? Who is this uncircumcised Gentile? And so they're hearing him go, what? You're like Goliath. Go get cut, man. Seriously. You need to be circumcised if you're a true follower of God. Paul's saying, no. That's not what it's about. Circumcision is about the heart, not about the head. It only has value if your heart is changed as well. The tattoo that says, I love mom on the side of your arm. And then you act like a jerk to your mom. You need to get rid of the tattoo. Get rid of it. I tell many people, please don't put that bumper sticker on your car. I've seen you drive. My son told me that, actually. Dad, no bumper stickers, man. Come on. Not good. You're cutting people off and swearing in the name of Jesus isn't a good thing. What are you? you? He's not you, Dad. Them. Oh. He said, did you ever look back? I said, no. He said, good. Good. But I... Yes, you did, Dad. Yeah. When a... 20-year-old boy says you're cutting off people? Just go, yes, Jesus. <laughs> yes. I'm so sorry. My eyes are bad. <laughs> okay. The Greek Christians. This is the next thing. Verses 29 to 37. It's the value of Greek relationship. A true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. True circumcision is behavior that happens because of new birth. Not old ideas. The praise of such a man comes not from men, but from God. The word for praise here is very interesting. If you went back to the Septuagint, the word for praise, apanios, which is the word used here, is translated in the Old Testament in the Septuagint as Judah or Jew. Same word. It means praise. So Paul is saying, if you're really a Jew, your praise comes from God, not from all the guys around you. Not from all this stuff around you. Not from people looking at you and saying, you are such a good person. I am so awed by your teaching. I bow before thee, most holy one. You go, you're right. It's good that you do that. You get in the picture. He says, that's not what you're supposed to be seeking after. The Jewishness of a man is determined by God's praise. That's what he's saying. The Jewishness of a person is determined by God's 
praise, not by man's honoring. See, the Jewish people are thinking, well, I know that it's important that our status here with God is seen as one that praises him. But it's important that other religious people praise me, too. And Paul says, wrong. No, you're wrong. That has nothing to do with it. They don't know who you are. They don't know what you are. And they shouldn't be judging you or anybody else. Your praise comes from one place. Where? God. He said, that's the only one you need to look for praise on. But in the midst of that, continue to exercise grace and truth. We promote the promises of God as we work on our performance of life. We promote the promises of God as we work on the performance of life. The Jewish advantage? Well, it's supernatural provision. What advantage is it being a Jew then, Paul? He says, well, it's great. You've got the standard of truth. You've had the opportunity to grow up with it. You've heard so much wonderful things. It's not enough just to be saved. We need to be changed. And you understand what we need to be changed into. You help us to have a clear example and understanding of what truth really is. And the standards that I need to live by. And as I begin to get a hold of that, it's a great thing. You have it. You got it there. You've been taught this wonderful math. You understand calculus. You get how it comes together. You know how to make it into structural integrity. So show me. Show the Gentiles truth with grace. Because they desperately want to know. Oh Lord, what am I supposed to be changed into? I don't know. I just don't know. All I know is Jesus died for me. He gave his life for me. And his wondrous grace came in and changed me. And now I have these new desires and these new motivations. But I'm not sure exactly how to put them into play. And he says, you Jews know how to put them into play. So help those people. It's Second Peter 1, verse 4 through 6, where Peter says... In view of these wonderful promises that God has given us and that you know, add to your faith these things. Grow up as a Christian. Develop and understand. Don't allow yourself to be so involved with cheap grace that you deny the very God that you proclaim to be God. It's the cry of Diedrich Bonhoeffer when he says, Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. It's the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace, that's grace without discipleship. It's grace without the cross. It's grace without Jesus as Lord. It's cheap. It's cheap. And that's not the grace that God has given us. You have undeniable grace. I know that some will say our sinfulness serves a good purpose, but if it helps people see how righteous God is, isn't it unfair for him to punish us? Oh, you Greeks, you've been saved. And you are much farther from God than the Jewish people were. And it's a great declaration of God's love and his grace. 
But cheap grace is not the call of the Christian. Grace sets us free so we can live for God and not for sin. We're forgiven so that we can stand up and get farther each time in our walk with God and the change. Freedom is never free. Someone has to pay the cost. I was in the airport yesterday. <laughs> And over the radio goes, uh, we have a plane coming in right now, and it's a fallen soldier. Please, would you all move towards the uh, windows to give them their respect? And everybody gets up and heads over to the window, and we stand there as a Marine is taken out, his coffin is placed into special thing with six other Marines who are honoring him. And there are all the guys in the Army are kind of doing this thing. You know. And I'm thinking, I feel kind of funny doing that, Lord, so I'll just stand at attention. But I want to honor him. And women are crying. And you're going, oh, freedom's not free. It costs Jesus a lot, and it costs all those who follow him a lot. That's why he said, the purpose of a Christian, the calling of the Christian is deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow him. And he goes on to say, you've got to deal with this moral and sensual depravity, these sins of your flesh. There will be penalty if you continue to follow after these areas of sin. God punishes you because you're choosing to be involved in those very things that he set up a law in the universe saying these are wrong and the result will be punishment. But Lord, why, why, why is this happening to me? You say that it's happening to you because you need discipline in your life. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's God's mercy being displayed to you. He's calling you to task without condemning you to hell. He's saying, hey, time to wake up. It's time to receive whatever it is that I need to give to you and take the pain in and change your life. Stop this nonsense. That after the policeman pulls you over, you say, you know, I got caught. That should be enough. You don't need to give me a ticket. I'm going to slow down, really. There's no need for divorce after the sin of adultery. It really didn't mean anything. There's no need for restitution doubled. Just giving it back after you caught me should be enough. After all, sin is exposed to sin, and that's enough, right? The humiliation of being known should be sufficient. There's no need, God, for penalty and consequence or even for me to have to ask forgiveness. And I go, you are so wrong. You need to beg for forgiveness. You need to bleed for forgiveness. You need to cry out for forgiveness towards those that you have pained, whatever that may be. You need to fall to their feet and say, please forgive me. And this false concept we have running around that says, well, you know, it isn't about them forgiving you. It's about you forgiving yourself. Yes, it's about them forgiving you. I need their forgiveness. I broke their heart. I interfered with their life. I committed adultery with their wife. No, I didn't. Don't do that. Okay. But if I did, then I need to beg forgiveness. Say, God, forgive me. And then I need to turn there and say, please forgive me. And I wait. Because it's only the power of Jesus flowing through somebody's life that allows them the ability to forgive you for what they've done. Because the bitterness is so strong. And there's so much pain. And you're going, I want to knock you out. I want to knock your head over. I want to beat you to death. 
Because you caused this pain in my life. Because you were part of it. And we need to have that recognition to go, God, I am so sorry. But we've lost it. We become like these Greek Christians and say, you know, it's not that big of a deal. After all, it's all about grace. Yeah. It is all about grace. And it's been provided to us by God. Don't make it cheap. The wrath of God is not something we use to judge other people. It's something we use to recognize sin within ourselves. It's the cry of Jesus when he says, first deal with the sin, the block, the huge log in your own eye, and then you'll be able to see well enough to help the other person take the splinter out of theirs. That's the wrath of God in our lives. God calls us to change, and he deals with in pain. And we go, Lord, it hurts. And he says, I know, but it's only if you have the pain of making your arms straightened out again that you'll ever be able to be straight. And you'll be able to use your arm correctly. And so we find ourselves going, Lord, bring on the pain. And so as God often does <laughs> to me, as I'm working through this section, saying, you know, Lord, speak to me. And I'm sitting here watching a show called The Voice. Okay? I'm going, okay, I'm doing this for my wife. And this gal comes on and, well, let's watch it.
Hmm. Wow. And so the Lord humbles me once again and says, Aha! See, your wife told you to watch this show. Wow. Now you have to get something to get a little handled. Two weeks before, she's saying, How great thou art. This pastor's daughter who understands the principles of grace and truth. I hope you know them as well. And that as a result of this time we spend in Romans, you got a better handle on understanding God's calling in your life. Yeah, we have to, every week, remind ourselves of those ABCs, right? The A is we admit that we're what? We're sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And that's the cry of Romans. It's saying, all of you guys need heart and behavioral change. You Greeks, you need to get your act together. You Jews, you need to get your heart together. It's about grace and truth. You need to believe that Jesus died for your sins. That he's the only Savior available. But you also need to commit your life to him 100% as Lord. Confess. Commit. Change. And God will enable you. He'll enable you by his grace as he speaks to you about his truth. Father, we thank you for this marvelous, marvelous word that helps us to understand ourselves and to come to grips with life and purpose and calling. So we give you this day and we ask, Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you and have that relationship with you today, they might say, Lord, I admit I'm a sinner and I desperately want you to become my Savior. And then show me, enable me to live a life filled with grace and truth. So today, Lord, hear the cry. Hear the cry. And for those of us who have come to that understanding, renew it. And help us to be people who are willing to sing the song. As hard as it is. Lord God. Make it rain. Thank you. Bless us this week for your sake. We ask in Jesus' name.